Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We'll have uh, lots of time for fellowship afterwards as well. We're going to be going ahead uh, today and continuing our series uh, a Father's Farewell, we're looking at Paul's last things that he ever wrote. The, the letter of 2 Timothy is actually the final words that the Apostle Paul wrote down that we have any record of uh, as he was writing from jail shortly before he was actually martyred um, under Emperor Nero. And so we're working our way through the letter, and today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. As always, the words will be up on the screen, and if you're here in person, they're also in the booklet with you. I'll be using the New International Version. I will this morning make reference to some, some underlying Greek, so all of the uh, grammar geek fans will love that, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. You'll see why it's pretty important. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, hear now the word of the Sovereign Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. We're going to do a little bit of a language test here. I'm going to throw out uh, actually a, the first two are Latin phrases and see if you can tell me what they mean. The first one, and everybody better get this, semper fidelis. Come on. That's a very loose translation. That's, that's the message paraphrase. What does semper fidelis mean? Always faithful, right, or always loyal. So, yes, and with a Marine pastor, you better know that one. Okay, so we got Semper, Semper Fi. Now we'll try another one, and Wendy Dykeman will hold off, and then she will give the correct translation if nobody else gets it. Adeste Fidelis. Anybody know what that is? Wendy, what, you remember that song, Wendy? Oh, come all ye faithful is what a deste fidelis is. I've got an old Latin version of that we use when we put up a Christmas tree. So both of those, fidelis means faithful. And then how many in here remember when we used to refer to music systems as hi-fi systems? Well, it was high fidelity. What did that mean? It meant it was a faithful reproduction. You're going to hear just like you were there when we play this back. All of these have in common the underlying idea of fidelity, of 
faithfulness, of something that stands the test. Well, throughout 2 Timothy, Paul is calling Timothy to be faithful. He's saying, I want you to be Semper Fi, Timothy, as it were. I want you to stay faithful no matter what the cost. But as we go through this, if you and I are honest, it's pretty challenging sometimes. We listen to this, and Paul's been talking so much about suffering. So what can help me be faithful? I mean, as a believer, I want to be faithful. What can help me be faithful? But there's also another question. Who is truly faithful? That's what we're going to look at today as we're looking at a faithful saying about the faithful God. So as we dive in, this shouldn't be a surprise if you've been paying attention to the Apostle Paul. He's once again going to go back to the gospel. We saw last week he'd begun in verse 1 and 2 regarding the grace of God and how we're made strong in grace. Well, as he begins a new section, he goes back to the gospel. And Paul says here in verse 7, I mean in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. So he's returning back to the gospel because every few verses Paul does this. Because even in a challenging letter like 2 Timothy, even when he's going to be giving a call to you and to me to say, I want you to be faithful, he's going to root that in the gospel. We can never stray from the gospel. It's our foundation. And so Paul here specifically says, remember Jesus Christ, because he's going to give us the content of the gospel again. And so he says, first off, I mentioned this last week, this is what's known as an imperative. This is not a good idea. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Timothy, I'm commanding you, I'm telling you, if you want to endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, if you want to be an athlete that wins the crown, if you want to be a hardworking farmer that's going to get the share of the crops, here's what you got to do. You must remember Jesus Christ because Jesus is the focus of everything. Even in a book where I am calling you, Timothy, to be faithful, where I'm going to be dealing with false teachers, where we're going to handle all of this, our focus has to always be returning and riveted on Jesus Christ. We focus on Christ and not anything else. Just as a little sideline, if you were ever part of a congregation and the focus is not relentlessly back on Jesus Christ, find another place. We're not after our brand. It's not about what we have to offer because we don't have anything to offer. Jesus Christ is the brand, so to speak. He's who we hold forth. He is what has to be offered. So the gospel is centered on Jesus Christ, and our focus has to return to Jesus again and again and again. And so it's not surprising that Paul begins this way, but he defines a little bit more of who Jesus is. Who do we mean by Jesus Christ? And he says that, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. So he tells us two key points here. Number one, Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, this is important. It was important in Paul's day because some of the groups that were around that were infiltrating the church were denying the resurrection of Jesus, the literal resurrection, because they said, well, it doesn't really matter because we're trying to get out of our body anyway. And Paul is saying, no, look, that's all off from the very beginning. You don't understand our body, what it's for. But if, to use his words in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. 
It's very important to understand that when we say Jesus, what we mean is the one who took flesh for us and for our salvation, who died, but who was literally, physically raised from the dead. Because if he was not literally, physically raised from the dead, there is no gospel. The entire message of the gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there is a focus here, and hear why Paul's specifically bringing it up here. He is encouraging Timothy, and through Timothy, the church then and the church now, to be faithful and to be faithful even unto death. Why be faithful unto death if God can't solve my death problem? Why die for the gospel if, they're, if that's the end? And so he brings up Jesus as the supreme example because the main focus here is that though Jesus was crucified, the Father was faithful to his Son and he raised his Son from the dead. And therefore, Jesus is the supreme example of suffering to do the will of God, but he's also the supreme example that those who do suffer to do the will of God are vindicated by God himself. So it's not just Jesus Christ crucified, it's Jesus Christ risen from the dead. God was faithful to his son even delivering him from death. And the message is to Timothy, even should I die, you die, any other believer die, God will be faithful to his covenant promises just as he was to Jesus. And that leads Paul to the second phrase, which is Jesus is the, the descendant of David, or some translations say the seed of David or the offspring. It's all the same Greek word, uh, the Greek word spermatos, uh, which just means basically seed. It can be used of any kind of seed. And it's a reminder that Jesus is in fact physically descended from David. But the reason this is important is it means that God was faithful to keep his covenant promises to David. And this is not a small thing. It is a key New Testament theme. So consider how important it is. The very first verse of our New Testament reads, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. Notice it doesn't begin with Mary. It doesn't begin with him being adopted by Joseph. It goes back and says he is the seed of David. In the book of Romans, Paul's greatest uh, letter, in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, notice he says, I'm a servant of uh, Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel. So he's talking about the gospel, just like he is here in 2 Timothy. But notice how he defines it. The gospel he promised before and uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Same phrase as here. And then he says, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So notice, gospel, descended from David, raised from the dead. The exact same points that the apostle Paul brings up here. It's all over the New Testament. One last place. In the very next to last words that Jesus actually speaks in the New Testament. The only thing he says after this is, I'm coming soon. Here's the words before that. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. 
Same word, offspring is seed, is descendants, all the same word. Uh, the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. So the New Testament consistently, from the very first verse of the New Testament to the next to the last thing that Jesus says in the book of Revelation, reminds us that God had promised David that your seed is going to sit on the throne, David. Come what may, no matter what happens, I will be faithful. One of your descendants is going to be seated on the throne. And the record of the New Testament is God fulfilled that covenant promise to David. And he did it through Jesus Christ. But here's a point that Paul's going to develop in the coming verses. Was David faithful to God? What do y'all think? Boy, y'all got quiet. I mean, at times he was, and then, and oh, then. There's a little Bathsheba, kill Uriah. Yeah, I had a son rape his sister, but, you know, I'm trying to keep somebody on the throne. Okay? David failed. Israel failed, but the New Testament records that though they failed, God was faithful, and he was faithful to keep the promises to David even though David himself was unfaithful. Brothers and sisters, that, that, that should be encouragement to the soles of your feet. David was unfaithful, but God was faithful. And let me just say in passing here in our culture, we live in a cancel culture that if you blow it, you are to be denigrated forever and can never be spoken of in a positive fashion. And if we're honest, how many people does that include? Everyone. So the only thing we could do then at this point is honor Jesus because everybody else has blown it immensely. But I want you to notice, thanks be to God, is God fully well aware of all of David's failures? Yes, I'm glad my sins are not etched in Scripture eternally like David's were. God does not spare. He records David's sins. He's open. He's honest about them. But I want you to note when it comes to the New Testament, the very, I mean, at the very end of the close, the, the scroll is rolling up and Jesus says, I want to remind you one more time, I'm the seed of David. Even though David failed, he is still my child. He is still worthy of being honored. God still fulfilled the covenant promises to him. Don't buy into a culture that wants to cancel everything out. All we're really doing is trying to make ourselves feel better by putting everybody else down. That is not a way forward. As, as everybody failed, yes. Is there anybody we're going to find that we're not going to look back and say, yeesh, that was kind of bad? There is no one. And if you don't know it yet, you just haven't dug deep enough. But we can honor them in spite of their sin, just the way God does with David. Just the way God does with David. So we've got this. Notice here, Paul begins, Jesus Christ, he's risen from the dead, he's descended from David, and it's an encapsulation of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and to his people. It reminds us that no matter what may happen, God is 
faithful. Endure, Timothy, because God is faithful. That's the first point. The second point that he wants to use to encourage Timothy is regarding the unchained word of God. Paul uses this great phrase there. Notice in verses 8 and 9, he says, this is my gospel. So what I just described to you, Jesus Christ, him risen from the dead. He's the descendant of David. That's my gospel. And then he goes on and says, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And the word criminal here is pretty strong. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is the thieves who were crucified with Jesus. Okay? This isn't a petty guy. This isn't a jaywalker or a misdemeanor. Paul's saying, I'm being chained up like I've done something terribly wrong, like I am this dishonorable person. It's a, this is why Paul's going back and saying, don't be ashamed of me, because what was happening to Paul was shameful. He was chained up like a common criminal. But Paul says, but I want you to, uh, and notice here he says, for which I am suffering, this gospel I am suffering for to the point of being chained. So notice it's that word suffering again that we've seen every week uh, in 2 Timothy so far. So it's meant to encourage Timothy saying, look, I am suffering for the gospel, which is not surprising because Jesus suffered. But Timothy, I want to encourage you because though I am chained up, the Word of God is not chained up. And so Paul's saying, look, they can lock me up. They might lock you up, Timothy. They might lock up other believers, but they cannot lock up the Word of God. God's Word is going to go forth. It is going to accomplish what God desires, and it's going to achieve the purpose for which God sent it. And so Paul says, because of that, as I'm sitting here, and you got a picture Paul is writing, as it were, and the chains are clinking on his wrists. As he's writing this out, he says, the word of God is not chained. And that is why I endure everything. Because I realize the word of God is going forth. It does not matter what happens to me. God is faithful right now to send his word forth. And so this is a uh, an encouragement to us. Uh, I thought about when I, when I read this, and actually one of the commentators even mentioned Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he's got the phrase, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You got to understand when Luther wrote those words, this is not Luther when everything was good. This was Luther when it looked like things might go wrong. Everything might fall apart. He might be put to death. But this is our faith. They might kill my body, but God's truth will abide. His kingdom is forever. Doesn't matter what happens to me. And Paul says he's willing to do all of this, therefore, as he meditates on this. He says, I'll do anything for the sake of the elect. Now, what does Paul mean by that strange phrase? It could refer to the fact that Paul's saying, I'm setting an example. God's people are going to have to suffer, and so I'm willing to suffer anything to set an example for them. And that is true. Paul does do that. But I don't think that's what he's really talking about here. I think what Paul is saying here is, look, the price of the gospel going forth is I'm in chains. The price of the gospel going forth is I'm soon to stand in front of Nero. The price 
for the gospel going forth is they're going to nail Peter to a cross and I'm going to put my head out and stretch my neck out and they're going to chop my head off. There is a price to mission. And Paul says, and I'm simply willing to pay the price because what I'm concerned about is that the gospel would go forth. So no matter what they do to the messengers, the message will ring forth People will believe and they will embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, and that is what matters. And notice Paul even says that they're going to do this. They're going to obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So it's a promise even to them because many of the people who were coming to Christ through the gospel as Paul was being martyred, who were part of the price that Paul was paying for, what was going to happen to them? they were going to be martyred as well. You can, you can actually go to Rome. I remember a few years ago when Linda and I were on our anniversary trip there and we were standing right across from the Colosseum. You can stand where Nero lit Christians on fire. Right there. We know the exact spot he did it. But see, here's the news. If you get salvation, the body they may kill, God's truth will abide, God will be faithful, and you will experience eternal glory. What they are actually doing is just promoting you into glory, so to speak. And so Paul is letting us know this, that believers can be encouraged and can endure in the face of suffering because we know that God's word is going forth and that God's kingdom will survive, it will thrive, it will grow until Jesus returns. I I regularly remind us of this, but But let me take a minute and do it again. As we're praying for our missionaries every Sunday, do not get down in the mouth about what's going on. Too many Christians are all worried, oh, the the last election doesn't go the way I want or I'm concerned about what the next election is. I'm worried about the kingdom. The kingdom's going to do fine. The kingdom is thriving and growing all over the world. America is not the kingdom. It's just simply not. The kingdom of God was here before us. It will be here after us. It will survive and thrive just fine. Do I want to see America prosper? Yes, I live here. My grandkids are going to be growing up here. I pray for that. I'm praying for great awakening. But never, ever, ever listen to anything that says the church is not going to make it. The church is not only going to make it, the church will survive, the church will thrive right up until Jesus comes again, because God has promised, and nothing can stop that. Now, Paul then moves on to this faithful saying, and this is where I actually got the title of the teaching, a faithful saying about the faithfulness of God. And so notice in verse 11, Paul brings up this phrase. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And the the word that the NIV has translated trustworthy, other translations, some of them use faithful, and it's just the Greek word pistos, which means faith or faithful. It's the common word that is used for faith, belief, and faithfulness all over the New Testament. And so, and it's the same word that in fact in verse 13 he's going to say, if we're faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It's the same word is used here. So this is a faithful saying, and there are actually five of them in the pastoral epistles. It's an unusual thing. And these last letters that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy and then Titus and then 2 Timothy is the final thing, there are five of these faithful sayings. 1 Timothy 1.15, 1 
1 Timothy 3, 1, 1 Timothy 4, 9, and then Titus 3, 8, and then this is the last one. The most famous of these that we've all probably heard is, this is a faithful saying worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Okay, that's the first faithful saying Paul gives. And these faithful sayings seem to be sayings that were known. They give the idea, the feeling that it's almost like he's quoting out of worship songs that we sing or something, that Paul's quoting these and Timothy's going to know what these sayings are. So is the rest of the church as they kind of listen in to Paul's final letter to Timothy. And he's stating that these things state the truth. These things are marking out the gospel as opposed to the false teaching that we'll be looking into next week, that, that there's these false teachers there in Ephesus. Paul's saying these sayings are faithful and true. They point out the truth. But one thing that's interesting about this particular one, it's the only one that's in poetic form. So a lot of scholars think this was almost certainly out of either a creedal statement that was used at baptism or out of like a hymn in the early church. Because you can see that it's in poetry. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. It's got this poetic structure to it. And notice that in every sentence, they all begin with if. So it's what's technically known as a protasis. This is an if statement. If this happens, then this will happen. They don't translate it as then here, but that's the idea. If we do this, this is what we should expect. And in every case, it's going to tell us what the Lord will do in return. But what's interesting here, and this is where I'm going to have to get a little bit into the Greek, is they're going to put up a screen and show you that in every one of the if clauses, if you can put it up, Danny, the next one, every one of the if clauses, the verb changes tense. So in the first one, if we died with him, it's actually a past tense. The, the Greek tense is technically aorist. Um, the second one, if we endure, the word endure is actually present tense. So it's, if, if you want to think of it as if we died with him. The second one, it's if we are enduring. The third one, it's future. If we will disown him at some point in the future, and then it returns to the present if we are being faithless. But what's interesting is the things that Jesus does are always in the future. Okay, so even though it's if we died with him in the past, in the future we will also live with him. If we endure in the present, we will also reign with him in the future. If we disown him in the future, in the future he also will disown us. But even if we are being faithless, and here it shifts to the present tense, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So we're going to pay a little bit of attention to what these things are, not because I just want to teach grammar, but because it's important in understanding what's actually going. And again, I remind you, Y'all can't read Greek. When you read Greek, it's very apparent he's shifting tenses as he's doing this, okay? So what's Paul trying to teach us? What does he want us to understand? Number one, our past and our future reality. Our past and future reality. If we died with him in the past, we will also live with him. But what's interesting is 
Wouldn't you first say if we die with him in a letter that's full of suffering, in a letter where Paul's writing in the, the face of his own martyrdom, we may be tempted to think he's saying if we're martyred with him. But we know that's not the case because if these people had already been martyred for Christ, he couldn't be writing a letter to them. They would already be dead. So they're clearly alive, but Paul's saying they've already died with Christ. And this is because what he's doing is he's using a language that is related to our uh, sanctification, and it's actually baptismal language. Those of you who've ever been at uh, water baptisms here in Bay Ridge will recognize the verses I'm about to put up. In Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the same language, and we use it at every baptism we do. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then verse 8 is almost verbatim to the faithful saying, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Again, we quote this at baptism because what happens is we're recognizing in baptism what has already happened to a believer. A believer has already died with Christ. I could put up, you know, in Galatians chapter 2, you know, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says we've already died with Christ, and my life is now the life of Christ in me. That's exactly what he's getting at here. If you are a believer, you have already died. Now, that should be encouragement when people are threatening you. I'm going to kill you. Really? Because it's already happened. I'm already dead. I'm a dead man walking. I already have died with Christ. The only death that really, really matters. Because I died with him, it guarantees I will live with him. Because I tasted his death, there will be no second death for me. I am freed by the death of Christ. But what's interesting is, even though this does look forward to our resurrection, of course, in water baptism, we don't leave a person under the water. We bring them up. And why do we bring them up? Because, and it's actually the part that we quote, bury with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And when do I start living that new life? Now. The resurrection that awaits me into the future is breaking in on me now. And what this means in this first part of the faithful saying is, it's yet not I, but Christ in me. That's another song that we sing. Everything is about who Jesus is and what he has done so that my life is now hid with Christ in God. I have died to my old self. Christ is raised within me, and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is reality for every Christian. Not something you achieve at the end of a secondary class or something else. This is your reality. If you are a believer, you have died with Christ, and his resurrection, life, and power is already in you. Second part of the faithful saying, 
is dealing with our present and future reality. So notice in verse 12, it says, if we endure or if we are enduring, we also will, we will also reign with him. So just because I have already died with Christ, what is my, that does not mean that, that everything is easy in this life. It calls for continuing endurance. In water baptism, I have signified that I have been justified with Christ, but it's also giving me, it's imparting grace and giving me power to walk in sanctification. It's giving me uh, power to walk free from the domination of sin, but it calls for endurance. And so notice here where he says, if we endure, this is the same word Paul used himself in verse 10, I'm enduring all things for the sake of the elect. I am suffering. I am chained up like a criminal. I'm about to be martyred. I will endure all of that. And here's why. Because I'm looking forward to an eternal reward. Because if I endure now, I will reign with him. Isn't that a strange phrase? But Jesus actually says, you can look it up in Matthew 19, 28. He tells the disciples, look, you, when I return at the, the renewal, the, the regeneration of all things, in the new heavens and the new earth, in essence, when I come back, you all are going to be sitting on 12 thrones. You're going to be sitting on thrones with me, and you're going to be judging the tribes of Israel. So Paul here, notice he's saying, yes, we are called to a present endurance. And what fuels that? Looking to future reward. And the reward is great. And so we need to understand what Paul is saying is our actions now have eternal consequences. I, I think back to that great scene in the movie Gladiator at the beginning where, where Russell Crowe is speaking to the troops and he's trying to encourage them in battle and he says, you know, what we do now echoes through eternity. Okay? Not a Christian movie. You know, the character, the fictional character he's playing is not a believer, but that is actually a Christian concept. What we do now echoes and reverberates into eternity. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, our actions now have eternal consequences. And the degree to which we endure suffering now determines the degree of reward and eternal glory then. And that is an encouragement that life is short your eternal reward is long, so endure now. To go back to the things from last week, if you're a soldier, stand firm. If you are an athlete, put up with the pain of your training because there is reward coming. If you are a farmer and it's hot and it's dry right now, keep laboring. The crop is coming. So Paul tells us all of these are true. Then he turns to the the, the third saying, which is actually the most difficult of the sayings, uh, the third and the fourth. And so notice here he says, if we disown him, he also will disown us. Now, again, the interesting phrase I want to remind you of both of these is they're both future. They're both future tense. You can't really see that in the English but they are both future. So it's if we will disown him, he also will disown us. And so I believe this is ultimately speaking of our response to Christ uh, and his uh, corresponding response to us as we stand before him in eternity. But here's the question. If that's it, then we can say, 
Well, then I don't worry about enduring now. I'll just wait. And when I get there, I'll say, hey, Lord, but I want to be on your team. But see, there's a problem with that. You know what determines the kind of person you're going to be tomorrow? What you do today. So there's an old saying, and you'll hear it. You know, some people say that it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, different people that attribute. They don't know exactly who first said it, but this is truth. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And what that means is, if I spend my life disowning Christ, what will I do when I stand in front of him? You'll disown him. You won't want him any more then than you do right now. Nor will I. See, this is one of the things, and we fool ourselves. This culture is full of this kind of foolishness right now. It doesn't really matter what I do today. I can change what I want. No, you won't. The decisions I make today are shaping who I will be tomorrow. You know, you watch in movies, and you see a person that has been on a path and been on a path, and they come to the critical moment, and you're like wanting to shout at the screen, like, don't do it, don't do it. It's already been determined, and not just because it's written in the script, but because that's the kind of person they are. And so Paul here is giving a warning to us, if you're the kind of person that will shrink in the face of battle, if you're the kind of athlete that will cheat to try and win. If you're the kind of farmer that won't work through the cold in the spring and the heat in the summer, don't think it's going to shift at the end. You will die in battle. You will not receive the victor's crown. And you will not receive a crop at the end because it's what you have sown all along. And so it serves as a warning to those who want to claim Christ without suffering, denying him in daily conduct before men, before our culture, and thinking that on Judgment Day they're going to proudly proclaim him and own him. They actually won't. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10.33, which is where this seems to be drawn from, but whoever disowns me, and I've highlighted that's in the past, Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So there Jesus is clearly saying what you're doing here on this earth is going to be reflected in eternity. Make no mistake about it. But notice in Paul the the, the tenses have been shifted, but it's because what we're doing right now determines the kind of person we are. We foolishly think, I can disown, 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 and at the right last minute, I'll come in and I'll own him. No, you won't. After a life being shaped that the true is false, the beautiful is ugly, and the good is evil, we won't change what we think on that day. Truth will still look like falsehood. Beautiful will still look like ugliness. And the good will look like evil because that's what we've trained ourselves in day after day after day. And so Jesus gives us this great warning here. Now, I want to ask a question though. Does that mean that there's no hope if we fail? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but who in here has ever 
in the moment flinched and not owned up Christ. Let's be honest, okay? I've never done that, but I know the rest of y'all. Come on, we've all been there. And all my Marine Corps stuff, that moment fold like a house of cards. And we've all, so does this mean that if I did that, there's no hope? Thanks be to God, that's not the case. Notice the ultimate reality to which this turns is the faithfulness of God. If we are faithless, now see, the whole thing has been we expect, you know, if, if I do this, this is what happens, and they're, and they're linked. So all of a sudden we expect here, if we're faithless, what's he going to be? Faithless back to us. But Paul says, but I can't say that. God would never be faithless. God will not be faithless. So if we're faithless, thanks be to God, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It is not in the character of God to be unfaithful. God is never unfaithful because it's impossible for him to deny himself. The, the Greek is in the strongest construction. Absolutely not. They can actually do a not-not, but that doesn't mean flip it to the positive. That means absolutely in no way. I'm underlining it. This cannot happen. God will never be found unfaithful. Even if you and I have been unfaithful, he is the faithful God. And so this is why when we look, because as you read these words, if we disown him, he'll disown us. What about Peter? See, Peter having heard Jesus say that, and you remember Peter jumped up and said, oh, everybody else. I, you know, These other 11 guys you got around you, Jesus, they're kind of shady. But I will be the man. And then when the moment comes, what does he do? Folds. And then you remember, he faced the awesome test, the fearful thing of having a little 12-year-old servant girl call him to account. And what did Peter do? Yeah, I have no idea who that Jesus is you're talking about. I, I got nothing to do with him. And it actually uses the exact same word. He disowned Christ. Who thinks when we get to heaven, Peter will be there? I'm quite certain. And you know why? Because even though Peter was faithless, God remains faithful. He does not deny himself, and that means he does not deny Peter. And this goes back to the end. This is all one section. It makes sense that God is faithful to Jesus. Jesus suffers. He dies for the gospel. But Jesus never compromised in word, thought, attitude, deed, nothing. Every desire was perfectly righteous. So of course God vindicates him. But what about you or me if we die for the cause of the gospel and Satan stands there and says, but look at what they thought. Look at what they said. Let me replay the tape of the times they were not faithful. But that's why we're reminded it's not just Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's Jesus Christ, the seed of David. God is faithful to his faithful son, Jesus, and he's also faithful to his unfaithful servant, David. That is the gospel. Because there's only one in the faithful category. <laughs> All of us are in the unfaithful category. 
but the gospel is that God is faithful. So we can say, thanks be to God, our hope is not in our unwavering faithfulness, but rather in the unwavering faithfulness of God. That is the gospel. That is our hope. And that's what's going to sustain you and me to allow us to continue to endure. Because if I'd been Peter and I folded like a house of cards in the face of an awesome challenge of a 12-year-old girl browbeating me, I can come back tomorrow and say, you know what, God's still faithful to me. Whereas if I'm done, well, that's it, I'm over, then there's no hope. There's no returning. So what does this mean for us? And we will come to the Lord's table. Number one, if you are here or you're listening and you are not a believer, I want to put out a plea for you to embrace Christ now. And this is not the old-fashioned because you might get in the car and die in an accident on the way home. You might. I mean, that could happen, but that's not the point. I want to put out a plea uh, thinking, you know, put off the idea, I'm going to respond later. Because every day you and I are making choices and they are hardening us into the person we are. And we think, because we have a false doctrine of the human will, and we have a false doctrine of freedom that says, I can choose contrary to my nature. I can choose contrary to who I am just because my will, it does not work that way. You and I choose who we are. And so, if you and I hear the Holy Spirit prompting at our heart, calling us to Christ, and day after day I put it down, I put it down, I pour water on it, I don't want this, I don't want this, you know what I get? I stop hearing it. And not even because the Spirit's not speaking, but because I have refused to listen. So I want to urge you, this isn't a threat, it's a recognition of reality. When you hear the Spirit call, respond. Do not harden yourself. Jonathan Edwards used the phrase that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. Friend, don't turn yourself into clay. Don't, don't get hardened to the grace of God. I urge you, respond to the gospel. Second thing is for those of us who are already believers. This is encouragement for wavering souls. There's a lot of challenging stuff in 2 Timothy. If we don't, if we don't feel challenged, if we don't feel a little bit, man, we're not listening to what Paul's saying. This is hard. Timothy, take up your suffering. Come with me. Come stand beside me as they're about to kill me for being a criminal. Link yourself to me. That's hard stuff. And we need to embrace the call to suffer, and our daily decisions regarding that are going to have lifelong and even eternal consequences. But I want to encourage you that if you're here and you're like, man, I feel like a, I feel like a reed that's bent over. I, I feel like a, a wick that's, that's wavering. I don't even know how long the flame's going to go. I want to encourage you. It's the faithfulness of God is going to keep you and me. 
Don't, don't ever look at some other believer and think, oh, if I could only be as strong as that person. Nobody's that strong. There, there, are, there are records, as you go back and you even look at the martyrs for the faith, all the times they buckled under pressure. But God's faithfulness kept them to the end. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. You may feel weak. You may feel wavering. But God is strong. And God is consistent. You may be aware as we go through this of areas of faithlessness. Do not let the enemy turn that into condemnation that hangs over you. You are faithless. You are more faithless than you yet know. And so am I. But God is faithful. That's where our hope lies. That is where everything in the Christian life comes from. So I want to encourage you today, let the character of God strengthen and encourage you. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table because this table reminds us of the faithfulness of God. And we approach this table, as we do each week, not because we've been faithful. How many of you are thankful that this doesn't begin every week by saying, anybody who sinned in the last two days don't come? It would be an empty table, right? I mean, don't touch the bread if you've been faithless. Well, I wouldn't be touching it. We come to this table because God has been faithful. And he remains faithful to us. Present tense. He remains. He abides faithful. So I'm going to begin by just reading a familiar passage. We've read this responsibly many times here at the table. But out of 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. So hear the word of God. And then if you're a believer, I invite you to the table. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. If you are here and you are one who confesses your sin, recognizing you have no hope of salvation, you have no right to this table apart from the grace of God, 
and you confess that freely, and you confess the righteousness of God and His faithfulness through Christ to forgive us, we invite you to participate at the table. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, go ahead and open up the bread part of the packet. Father, you are the faithful God, making and keeping covenant, always doing what is right and just. But in taking this bread, we admit that we are unfaithful, blown here and there, doing one thing today and another tomorrow. So Jesus took our flesh and fulfilled our covenant obligations in our place. So we give you thanks for his body and his work, and we receive it today humbly as your people. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are ever our faithful high priest. You obeyed the Father's will in your every thought, word, desire, and deed. And we receive this cup, not as a sign of our faithfulness, but rather as a confession of our sin. For we have sinned against you and those around us in thought and word and desire and deed. And so we thank you for the cleansing power of your blood, and we receive it in faith, trusting you alone for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and we will conclude with a closing prayer and then the word of blessing. Our Lord and God, you have called us to confess you before all men. And this we do today. For Lord, we have come to this table proclaiming your faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. Our deep need for forgiveness and the forgiveness that is given to us in Christ alone. So now we pray, Spirit of God, fill us that we might confess our Lord Jesus Christ each day this week, confessing him with our lips and pointing to him with our lives. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of power and of love and of self-control and wisdom and discipline. So enable us to serve Jesus this week. May we boldly proclaim the truth 
May we consistently love those even who hate us. And may we live in a manner that is pleasing to you, consistent with your gospel and for our good. We ask all of this in the wonderful, glorious name of our gracious Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may you know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, strengthened as you look forward to the resurrection from the dead and eternal glory that is yours in Christ. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.